Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur, Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the City's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team, the Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison, GB Javelin champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the Chief Exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the Chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference. My name is Andy McIntyre. I'm co-founder with Tony Fawner of VSI Executive Education. We are thrilled to be working in partnership with Frank McKenna and his fabulous team at Downtown in Business on a series of 10 podcasts focusing the business of sport. We'll be engaging with some of the industry's most influential figures at a time when the English Premier League in particular has become a truly global force. I'm delighted to welcome Agut Jinua to the podcast for Downtown in Business and VSI Executive Education. Really proud to say that Gucci's just graduated as well as VSI's as students and the CEO of the sports organisation. But this is a man with a stellar playing career as a professional footballer, but also a man who's made his mark off the pitch. Gucci, talk us through your background a little bit in the United States and the trailblaze of clubs that you've played for, the likes of AC Milan, Newcastle United, Sheffield Wednesday, Philadelphia. Yeah, no, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and to be a, a recent graduate of the CEO program for me, it was a, it, it was a monumental moment. Um, the cohort uh, had a diverse group of people, which I, I feel I'm going to be in, in contact with uh, forever uh, throughout my the rest of my life and career. So I was really for, fortunate um, to be selected for that. So thank you. I know that they very much took you to their heart and the, the level of your commitment was astonishing. Travelling from the United States every four or five weeks for two days in, in Manchester is evidence of, of, of the DNA of the man. Yeah, no, I mean, you make a commitment, you stick by it, right? Um, and I'm a firm believer that you you invest in yourself like you would in anything else, like uh, in, in stock, for example. You know, you want it to rise and you have to, to make the right moves and, and make the right commitment. So uh, I started this course and I was committed to not miss a day of it and, and see it through. So that's just what I did. So was that commitment and dedication uh, what defined you as a, as a, as a professional footballer? I, I think so. I think that's part of my DNA, my personality. Um, I... I'm somebody that has dreams, uh, but then I go a step further and say that my dreams are goals 
And the, what, the way I differentiate dreams and goals are I put a timeline on goals, right? And so it's not just a uh, far-fetched, oh, I want to do this, but, you know, I, I want to accomplish this by this time. And so until I accomplish a goal, I can't move on to the next one. So take me back to the start then of your soccer career. You set yourself a goal, a timeline. Describe that to me. Yeah, so obviously I grew up in, in America in, in the 80s and 90s where soccer wasn't as prominent, um, definitely not in America as it is now. And I was a multi-sport athlete. You know, I ran track, played basketball, played soccer or football. And, and at that time, I think growing up, I wanted to be a professional basketball player because oh, that's, really? uh, you know, the Michael Jordan era, Scottie Pippen, everybody uh, was playing basketball. And um, I was at the time equally good in both sports, football and, and basketball. And then it, I just thought I was excelling a lot quicker in, in soccer. So I just stuck with it. And uh, yeah, I, you know, started playing organized football and then started getting noticed by recruiters and, and playing on more competitive teams. And by the time I was 16, 17, uh, probably 16 years old, starting with the youth national team, the, the under 16s, under 17s, I decided I want to be pro. And at that time I said, I will be a pro before I'm 20 years old. And so this was one of those eras where the only pathway for uh, children in soccer or, or boys in soccer was you go to college and then you go pro. Um, and so, um, I had the opportunity actually, uh, after the youth world championships to, to sign pro at 17, 18 years old in Europe. And my parents who are, are big on, on school and academia, they were like, nah, you're going, you're going to university. So I said, I said, okay, no problem. I'm, I'm going to university. They said, you're going to try it, see how it is. And if you, if you enjoy it, if you don't enjoy it, then you can leave. So in my mind, I said, okay, I'm I want to go pro, so I'm going to leave after one year. So I, I went one year in uni, and I realized I wasn't ready to go pro. And I made the decision to stay a second year. Did you go as a, as a soccer scholar? To yeah, yeah, I, I had a full ride to Clemson University. Wow. And um, yeah, we won ACCs. We were a really strong team. And I, like I said, I, I had entered uni with the expectations of after one season, I'm gone, you know, because I want to be a pro. And I think after some self-reflection and, and understand that I wasn't one technically ready, but, but secondly, I wasn't personally ready to make that jump, uh, to the pros yet. So I stayed another season. Um, and then in 2002, uh, before I turned 20 at 19 years old, I, I signed my first professional contract in France. Who was that with? That was with FC Mets. Okay. Yeah. Now that must've been a big transformation leaving university and as high quality as, the, as the, the program is at Clemson, at Mets, you're dealing with men who have to earn money every every week, win to pay their mortgage. Yeah, no, 100%. It was it was a huge transition, right? You're playing with playing with friends who, you know, their only objective is to win a championship, not to put foot on the table for their family or or, or their wives or, or what have you. And so my mindset had to change, right? This wasn't a friend. Well, it was a friendly environment, but it was, you know, you were in competition, not just with your adversary, but with your own teammates. And so I feel that a lot of youth, um, especially in America, because there's so many different pathways to some form of success. Like if you don't, if you can't, if you fail this way, you can do this. If you fail here, oh, there's another avenue you can be successful in. And, 
in, in a lot of scenarios and countries, you don't have that luxury uh, of different pathways to success. And I think that, um, Figuring out how to replicate desperation within your approach really helped me to to be successful um, prof- professionally uh, at a young age in Europe, being an American where it wasn't uh, a normal occurrence. Yeah. Uh, did you speak French when you went to that? I spoke nothing besides English. Uh, yeah, that was another hurdle. You know, you're you're leaving your your maternal tongue. You don't speak anything whatsoever, and so. I made the decision that I was just going to dive into this and, and try to assimilate as best I could, as fast as I could. Um, and so, you know, I, I started learning the language, speaking to people, telling people not to speak to me in English. Um, and so I quickly learned the language, learned French. Um, and from, you know, when I signed professionally before 20, my next goal was, I want to play in the world cup before I'm 25. And so I wouldn't, so I tell you there's sequences to goals. So there's no way I could have been a world cup player before I signed professional contract. Right. So there, there has to be a sequence of events and um, you know, you sign pro and then now your next objective is that, but you haven't even played a game. Right. And so for me, it was, okay, how do I get first team football? Um, How can I stand out and be noticed for the national team? I had no clue. You know, I was, I was not even 21 years old and they had a generation of strong defenders. And at that time it wasn't uh, such a young generation of players, you know, a defender had to be older and experienced in order to be on the field. Um, found my way to Belgium on loan to get playing time. Um, was very successful, uh, was then bought by standard Liege in Belgium and, and was, uh, a standout in, in the league. Um, <laughs> at that time it was myself and Vincent company who were like the two strong center backs. He was playing for Anderlecht at the time. And I was for Liege. Wow. Elite company. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I was able to showcase my talents, um, domestically in Belgium enough and, and, and the national team coaches took notice to that. And, you know, I found my way onto the national team and, Played in the World Cup uh, at 24. When did you make your debut? I made my debut. Well, I actually found myself unofficially into a camp after my first year pro um, because they had a a training camp in in Washington, D.C. And I was home on vacation and they said, hey, we need bodies. Can you play? And that was my first um, experience with them. And then officially I got invited in 2004. So a year after that. Um, And that's where from 2004 for the next two years um, was kind of my ascension with the national team and to where I became a starter and for the 2006 world cup in Germany. And 69 caps at the end of your career. Spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm it's, you know, unfortunately uh, injury prevented me from having more, but definitely uh, I was blessed enough to, to have those games as it is and, and to play in two world cups and to play at the number of clubs that I've played in, you know, as an American, cause it's, it's not a common occurrence. Um, and, you know, I, I think I, I credit that to differentiating myself and, and, and obviously understanding that no one's special, but everyone's unique and try to display my uniqueness um, as best I could um, to the point that, you know, clubs like Milan or Sporting Lisbon or Newcastle, uh, Malaga were able to take notice and, and to, to ask for my services. Having jo- enjoyed some time in, this, in the same city as, as where Vincent Company's made such a big impression, um, 
he he was really vocal in his valuing education as part of his own development while he was still a player. Is that something you? Yeah, yeah, no, no. Vincent is a, he's a sharp guy. You know, he was definitely a a special footballer, but also a very bright individual as well. And for me, as I told you, my family values education. Uh, I have. Uh, I have four brothers and sisters, two of them who are, who have their doctorate and are doctors. Uh, the other two are engineers and mathematicians. And so my family really holds education high. And so one of the things I told my, my mother, I promised her when I left uni early, I said, I'm going to finish my degree. Um, I didn't probably didn't have to, and she probably didn't believe me. Uh, but I actually, I, I finished my degree, um, in internet. Well, it was a dual degree actually in, in French and international business. Um, so I, I definitely believe that it, it's important to continue an educational pathway because you'd never know when your sports career is going to be over and what skills or what, what formal learning do you have to support you in your next stage in, 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 in your life? Do you think you, your education made you a better footballer? I think my education along with my experiences made me, a, made me a better footballer. Right. Um, I think the fact that I had the wherewithal to know not to leave uni early too early, cause I could have left early and just fallen on my face and, and failed. Um, and I think, I needed that extra year of development, uh, not just from a football perspective, but from like a growth perspective, uh, becoming a man uh, to be able to cope and to deal with what I was going to deal with uh, later on in my future. So I definitely believe it, it's that cognitive understanding as well as that, that formal teaching that definitely assisted me. And you certainly had a career uh, over some of the, the really big clubs around Europe. Tell me about the high spots of your playing career outside of the national team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the net, yeah, the, there's a lot of high spots. Um, obviously, uh, we, I told you, I played against Vincent many times yeah. and uh, it was a, a big rivalry in, in Belgium, Liège and Anderlecht. And uh, when I, signed to Liège. They were a big club that hadn't won. They were big without any silverware in the last two decades. And a bit like Man City when Vincent signed for them. Correct. correct. And um, within four seasons of me being there, we won back-to-back championships. And since I've left, they have yet to win a, <laughs> win a championship. So, so that was a very um, important milestone uh, for me and for the, for the city and for the club. Um, obviously, uh, signing in Milan, um, being the first American to, to sign to that club and, and just signing to that club in general with its, with its history, with its rich history and, and, and notoriety for me, it was, um, you know, it was, it, it I, I don't really have the words to explain it because even at the moment it came so fast, right? I didn't have even time to process it when it was happening. Uh, but now that I can detach myself and look back at my career, I'm like, wow, you know, that, that was a huge feat that, that you were able to accomplish. So while you're enjoying this uh, successful playing career, did you always have one eye on the future and clearly a future where you, you want to be a strategic leader in sport? Yeah, no, for sure. I, I always had an understanding that this wasn't going to last forever. The star system was eventually going to, going to fizzle out. And, and I think I attribute that to my family that was able to ground me throughout my career and, and make me understand that regardless of my successes, it's all going to end. What are you going to do next? 
And how are you setting yourself up? So you're not, um, you're not in the fog and you're not wondering what to do. So prior to retiring, I retired in 2018 in 2013. I think I, I started my first company. It was a nonprofit, uh, focused towards uh, childhood obesity and, and, and kids remaining active and fitness. That's, that's something that I know that our partners downtown and business are passionate about, uh, in Liverpool where they've had challenges in that area and they've worked closely with certainly the Everton foundation, um, to support kids in, in that yeah. respect. No, no, it's huge. I mean, I think a lot of things that I do in my life um, will involve, there's there's very few things that I'll refuse if if it's involving uh, helping kids and making them smile. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll never I'll never turn down an opportunity to do that. Um, but from there, I, uh, 2015, I started my second company, which is a sports performance company um, that, you know, we've been operating since 2016. And, you know, still till now. So I've always had an eye in, in terms of operations and leadership. Tell me about that company. Yeah, that, the company is called Onyx Elite. Um, our brick and mortar location is in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, we have a second location in, in Alexandria, Virginia, but basically we focus on sports performance for all disciplines, all sports from American football, soccer, basketball, hockey, lacrosse, volleyball and we cater to all athletes that aspire to get to that next level. Um, cause as we know, like sports performance and sports science has developed immensely in the last, uh, three decades. And so now every athlete is looking for that extra edge, that extra competitive advantage. Yeah. And we, and we offer that. Um, and so I've, we've been doing that for multiple years and growing and, and growing in notoriety and expanding in our clientele base. So it's something that, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased. And, and I started it because, as a professional athlete, we're privy to these services. And I realized that the general population don't know half the things that we do as, as athletes in terms of performance. And I wanted to find a way to bridge that gap and offer those services to everybody uh, who, who desired it. So that's what we did. So at what point did you decide you were going to bring the curtain down on you, the performance element of your career? Never use the word retirement <laughs> athletes because it's an evolution of your life. To be, to be fair, like I said, I always set goals. And from the start of my career, I always had the idea of when I'm 35, um, I, I would, it would be around the time I would call it quits. Um, my last season in uh, professional football was with the Philadelphia union and I had turned 35 in that season and I could play probably for a few more years if I really wanted to, if I really you know, urged it and pushed it. But that, at that point I was like, I have nothing left to prove. Like, what, what do I need to accomplish right now? It's I'd rather better my time to help the next generation be better than anything I was. Um, and so within that, you know, I, I set out to, to, to earn it or gain experience in administrative uh, organizations in football. Um, so held sporting director roles at um, lower divisions, uh, professional divisions in America, as well as academies. This is prior to me um, going over a year and a half ago to, to Belgium. So that was a really uh, another interesting move. Um, talk me through what, what, what that, about that move. And, and to Belgium. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was a sporting director. Um, for an academy in, in Orlando when COVID hit. And this is- Was that Orlando B then? Well, I was in Orlando B, their second team. That was their uh, professional team. And they were playing in the third division America. And then I was there for a year. 
after that, I stayed in Orlando and then transitioned to uh, a sports academy called Mount Verde Academy and worked in there. I was a sporting director for their, their soccer program. And this is me wanting to gain experience at, at, from a lower levels before I even like attempted to do anything on the senior side. Right. I wanted to know how to, how to make the building blocks of a home before just jumping into one. And so when COVID hit, just school shut down. Everything just went belly up. And I, I left Florida, moved back to, to America. Um, and then while things started opening up, I started doing some analyst work with CBS, uh, for the national team during the world cup qualifying campaigns. Uh, and within those, those, uh, those months or years that I was doing work with CBS, I was offered the opportunity to be the secretary general CEO of, um, uh, of Virton in Belgium, the Belgium second division. And, uh, it kind of came out of nowhere based on some of the uh, contacts and connections that I have. And for me, I said, you know, this could be a, an interesting opportunity, um, and experience for me as I'm going towards this leadership journey and, and, and aspiring to, to have similar positions at higher clubs with more notoriety. So I took that opportunity, um, in, I believe it was August of 21. Yeah. Not all bad experiences though (laughs) are are without great learning. And I I know this had its challenges. Um, Do you feel you came out of it stronger? Tell tell me about the challenge. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of challenges for sure, but I, I, I'm a firm believer in you learn the most through difficult times than you do through the best times. Right. Cause you know what, um, what, you learn the reasons of failure. You learn what you could do better, uh, both for yourself, but also organizationally. Um, so there were a lot of challenges within that and, and, and seeing a smaller club or a club at smaller scale and what you would do differently or how you would change things if you were at a, a larger club with more resources and, and a big, bigger infrastructure. So for me, it was really taking all the challenging moments or the difficult times And being like, okay, anywhere else, I'm going to change this. I wouldn't do this. I'd avoid here or I'd emphasize more in this area. Um, I'd I'd put staffing here or I wouldn't put staffing there. Um, I'd communicate this to the owner. I wouldn't communicate this to the owner. Um, So it was it was it was a myriad of of learning experiences that for me, I I I think was invaluable. and to be fair, I, I'd, I'd do it all over again if I learned the the same things that I did learn. So you'd have a flavor of being a sporting director, chief executive. What direction do you see your career moving in? I mean, they're, they're both obviously senior leadership roles, but have you got a bent for one over the other? You know, you know it, uh, I'm not going to say I've, I have a bent for one over the other. I, I think it all depends on the opportunity that's presented. Um, you know, not all organizations, you will want to be the CEO, right? You, you might want to be hands-on and then there's other organizations where you want to be able to shape, um, how the, the organizational structure is. So I think for me, it's, it's keeping my options open and, and looking towards an organization more importantly, that aligns with where I want to go and how I want to operate and work more so than picking a, a specific role within that. Do you think you face a bigger challenge as a black man to get into the boardroom? Um, the short answer is yes. Uh, just if we're going off of statistics. It tells you it's absolutely right. So, I mean, I, I don't know off head the statistics in Europe, but I'm sure it's not far off from America. If, if you were dealing with the MLS 
Um, I think it's, I think we're over 25% representation on the playing side. And then you go to coaching and it's below 3%. Uh, head coaches are, are ethnic, uh, minority. And then if you go even higher up in the front office, it's, it's even lower. It's, I don't even know if it's 1%. Um, but I think that there are, are huge gaps and discrepancies in terms of representation. I think that football is such a global sport that the fact that it's not represented in the different sectors of clubs, it, it's almost, um, it's disheartening because I think that in uh, organizations should reflect the, the people that they represent, right? I mean, it makes commercial good sense if nothing else. Uh, well, if nothing else, but also it, it offers you a, a diversity of thought, a diversity of experiences, and you're not just pigeonholed to uh, one demographic's experience, right? Which no, I'm not underplaying the ethical element, but I'm saying if you've only got one echo chamber of thought, mm-hmm. y- your organization is the poorer for it. Correct, correct. And and for me, I think that, yeah, they're, they're, the opportunities are there. Or I would say that we are all have parity in regards to our abilities and skills, but for whatever reason, uh, there's no parity in regards to opportunities. And so I think once those kind of align with one another, you know, I think football is going to, or sport and or society is going to uh, reach, reach uh, limits that it hasn't up until this point. Do you think role models are required to show people that they can aspire to be in those particular senior roles? Yeah, I think, I think in general, humans, individuals aspire to be what they see. Right. And so it's hard to, I mean, it takes a real strong willed person to, to envision themselves being something if they haven't seen that reflection anywhere else. Um, And so just prime example, when I was a young footballer, I looked up to a player called Eddie Pope and he was an American central defender and he was black and he was just dominant and he was like the star defender on the national team. And I said, okay, I can do this. Fast forward 2006, he's my central defender partner and I'm playing next to the guy that I idolized, you know, growing up. And, you know, I, I definitely attribute my desire to reach that level to the fact that he was actually doing it. And so, you know, my current desire to, to get into executive roles at football clubs are selfish, selfishly because I think I can impact them in a positive way, but also uh, more broadly that I want to see that change in the future. And if I think if current um, players or, or individuals of minority see individuals like me in those roles, they'll think that it's, it's attainable Absolutely. as well. In your career, you must have, you must have encountered good, bad and different leaders Tell me about some of the good leaders that you've that you've worked with and for, and and what elements of their leadership style is is reflecting your style. Yeah, I mean, I, I've dealt with an uh, from the national team to 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 club, and I've I've played. I've I've been blessed to play with a a, a lot of different uh, top class players. Um, just in Milan alone, there was a generation of of, of stars on that on that team from Seedorf to Pirlo to Inzaghi to Ambrosini to, you know, uh, Dida. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, But, you know, I think for me, 
I looked up to everybody in regards to, I respected people for what they did and what they accomplished. Um, but I really looked at myself to push myself further. So I never tried to be somebody else. I just always try to be the best, best version of me with the understanding, knowing that I'm not the best. Right. Like, so I, I always said, I know for a fact I wasn't the best central defender, but I also know that I had a unique skill set that obviously people thought was useful, which is why I was able to sign to the clubs I signed, play in the games I played in and, and, and reach the accolades that I did. So there isn't one particular leader that you, you've worked for that you thought, yeah, actually, that, no, that's what I, I don't about. think there's only one. I, you know, I think there, I've taken some good and bad from everywhere because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've experienced some good and bad. I try not to focus on it too much to be fair. When I was a player much in, in like, for example, games, as soon as the game was over, I kind of forgot it because I stressed so much of the anticipation. And then once it was done, it's like a, a weight was off my shoulder. And I can just focus on the next one um, within teams. I would say leadership, but more so like, friendships. And then for me, it was connections. So the players that I connected with, I, I held more importantly than anything else. Um, and so that, that was pretty much how I operated throughout my career. So you're now in an era where, uh, soccer in America looks as though it's about to explode. It's obviously got massive challenges still with competing sports, but the MLS is doing well. USL is, is looking, uh, more attractive by the year. What's your vision for, for five years' time, World Cup? Is it four years' time? Three years' time. Three years' time. <laughs> Three years time. For, for the World Cup. Yeah. Um, how's that going to impact on the game over there? Yeah, it, I think it's going to have a significant impact on the game, much like the 94 World Cup did with the, the, the promotion of the MLS in the first place. I think that the World Cup is going to inspire a generation of, of athletes, of soccer players that are just going to, be amazing. I think the infrastructure and the investment in the game in the last two decades has been amazing, right? And to the point that now MLS is a household name outside of America. You know, European markets know the MLS. Uh, they actually shop in the MLS to, to bring back um, players over to Europe. So I, I definitely believe that us as a nation, we have an opportunity of not just showcasing our talent, but showcasing, you know, our potential uh, in the future. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to one, the competition and two, seeing how our golden generation is going to perform at home during the World Cup. Because you've got some fabulous young players coming through. Yeah. Um, I know the under 18 team is very powerful. And then you've got the existing uh, players who 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 are breaking into major European leagues yeah. now making impacts. And then the women's side is also hugely powerful. So it's, it's looking very strong for the nation. Yeah. The, the women's team, they've been a, a, a juggernaut for years. So, so that's kind of a constant on their side, credit to them that they've been able to maintain uh, their culture and their dominance in, in international uh, soccer. Is the club, is the, is the women's club game developing at the same pace as the national team? It is. It is. I mean, the, the NWSL is only in its 10th year. I think it's the third iteration of professional football in, in the women, on the women's side in America. And I think that it's, it's not going anywhere. There's been significant investment. I think the most recent was 
over 50 million uh, franchise fee of a, a recent entry of a team. So there's been a lot of uh, increased investment in the women's side um, that's mirroring the pathway that the MLS took some years ago. So I, I believe that the women's side is only going to get stronger as as people take notice and, and understand that our national team is strong and maybe the best market to develop the women's game is in America. Absolutely. And as you say, it has been powerful there uh, for many years. I mean, I remember going back to 94 and seeing just how, how strong the, the girls team were then. Um, I'm sadly of an age where I was actually at the 94 World Cup covering it in a different life as, as a journalist. And it didn't feel as though it had the same energy and anticipation as it has now. Would you think that was fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think soccer wasn't as well understood in 94 as it is in 2023, right? I think it was a, a sport that was more recreational at well, that it time. It was still the biggest participation sports yes. in the country in 94. So that, that's the, the, that was the main issue. It's a huge, in terms of youth participation, um, but after that, there was no lucrative ab- pathway because we didn't have a professional league yeah. that offered that... Uh, that offered you to earn a living like it would overseas. Um, And that changed once the MLS came. And I think the MLS of today is nothing compared to the MLS when it first started uh, 25 plus years ago, right? You have individuals earning upwards of $6 million now where I think initially they were stars like, league stars earning maybe 50,000 a year. Um, and so one, the, the, the marketing has increased, the visibility has increased. I think the, the quality of players have increased. Um, I don't think it's yet reached the summit that it can compare with the major European countries, but I definitely think that's an, an objective of the league and they're trying to find ways to lure better players and better coaches um, to the league in order to to build it. How important is it they continue to promise, uh, promote domestic talent through the league? Because fans love to see a player who's a local player who's come through the the increasingly successful academy system. Obviously, the, traditionally, the university system has been the pathway, but most of the MLS clubs are now building really top quality academies. Yeah, I mean, everyone loves a, a hometown story, yeah. right? And I think in any country, whether it be England, Spain, France, America, I think the emphasis should be on developing um, domestic talent, right? But understanding that, that that also can be supported with some uh, international talent in there, right? Because I think there's they, we go back to that diversity. Yeah. Um, and so it's a global game and globalization means like there's going to be a, a lot of crossing paths um, and opportunities for people in different corners of the world. So I, the MLS teams, I think of recent, have learned one, the the benefits, uh, the financial benefits and the opportunities of creating a, a proper academy and the selling of players and the developing of players and, and and some of the revenues that they can generate from that. So I think that more so now than five, 10 years ago, you see clubs really putting up huge emphasis on their youth academy. And in terms of the cities supporting the build of, of bespoke soccer stadiums 
is that in recognition of the, of the value to the local economy that soccer can bring? I mean, I think that's a recognition of the the pathway, right? Uh, when the league started, you maybe have teams playing in makeshift stadiums or shared stadiums. And now you have soccer specific stadiums almost everywhere. There's only a, a handful of teams that, that share their stadium with uh, an NFL team. And that's probably because the owners are the same as the NFL teams in that, in that city, uh, like Atlanta United. But even in Atlanta's stadium, they get sold out crowds in their NFL stadium. So that, that, that's credit to them in regards to their, their, their influence in the city. I mean, VSI is teaching uh, out of the Inter-Miami Stadium our master's degree for sporting directors. But what's really exciting is, is the prospect of moving to the new stadium that looks like it's going to be magnificent, um, actually, in Miami. Yeah, I think any new franchise, they they all, always have to come with a pitch of creating a stadium, building a stadium. The current Inter-Miami Stadium is a new rendition of the former Miami team's stadium. It was the old Lockhart Stadium, and they just renovated it, made it, yeah. made it new. It's in, it's in Fort Lauderdale. La- it's in Fort Lauderdale, correct. And I think they have plans now to relocate it. I think they've secured the the grounds yeah, and the yeah. space to to build a... <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be impressive. I've seen the plans for it. It looks absolutely unbelievable. I'm sure it, it has to be. If it's going to be in Miami, <laughs> it's, it's going to, I'm sure it's going to be very impressive. Uh, there's an interesting uh, cultural issue. So if you're... Um, building a team in Miami, is it a team where you focus on Hispanic players in the main, or do you? It seems it, there's a either a Northern European culture or a Hispanic culture. Um, is that fair? Well, well, I'm not from Miami, so I, I can't really speak on the 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 local culture. But I, I will say that I think it's important for any club uh, to some degree to have to be a reflection of of the, the ecosystem that they belong to. Right. And so, um, having individuals that are born and raised there or, or, or share the values of that city are, are very important, not just to the club, but to the supporters of the club, because ultimately these supporters want to see themselves and the players that they're cheering for. Right. And that's in any situation, whether it be Man City, whether it be Leeds, whether it be, you know, Leicester, anybody, they want to see their players share the same value and the same hunger, you know, to 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 compete um, as they do. So I, I think all MLS teams try to create that reflection in some way, shape or form. Some do it. Yeah. Some do it better than others. Um, but I definitely think that it, it is definitely in the minds of, of the organizations when they're um, building a team. One of the keys to the ongoing success of, of the MLS, of course, is the broadcast deals. And with another one of your hats on, of course, yeah. you, you've been a, a noted broadcaster yeah. in the United States. Yeah. I, I definitely believe that the, the, the recent deal with Apple um, was a, a huge, importance to the league and the growth of the league um just being able to highlight and broadcast the the games on one platform where you can view internationally anywhere at any time i think it's really going to increase one the visibility but two the potential transfers because now clubs and teams can see players uh on the apple app right which everybody has apple tv everybody has access to that so i think you know, in the next coming years, you're going to see a lot of uh, increased transfers out of the MLS or potential deals out of the MLS because of that. And will you also see some of the bigger names from Europe coming into the 
MLS, Europe and South America. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, that was always the case. I think early, early days, it was more so towards the tail end of their career. Yeah. It was, it was the kind of finishing. Right. Yeah. They, they were like, you know, I'm going to come to the MLS and have fun and live in a nice city and kind of retire here. I think more so now, if you speak to the international players that have played overseas and you ask them if it's easy to play in the MLS, they'll, they'll probably tell you no. Um, just because the game's different, the 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 schedule's different, the travel's different. Travels a massive difference. Yeah, to yeah. I mean, imagine flying from Florida to LA and then back to Florida, <laughs> you know, in 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 four days, right? And so time difference as well that I don't think uh, many European many European countries deal with in terms of their travel. So you know, you, you're you're playing DC. And then flying to, you know, San Jose, three hours time difference, and then flying to Chicago, which is now two hour time difference. And it's all out of whack. It's really difficult and it's really taxing um, on players that aren't used to that. Right. Where let's say you played in England your whole career and you might have to take a plane twice, three times a, a season. And otherwise it's the train or the bus. Right. Um, with America, it's, it's quite a normal weekly or bi-weekly occurrence that you're taking a flight. And we've had American uh, NFL games played in London with great success. Um, there's talk of Premier League games being played in the United States. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for the MLS? <laughs> I would say, is that a good thing or bad thing for the EPL? Well, uh, I, I definitely believe if they have the right games, um, in America, you're definitely going to get sold out, sold out stadiums, right? So it's going to increase the interest of, of soccer. I'm not going to say if it's good or bad for the MLS, but it's definitely good for the soccer culture in America and in terms of them being exposed to a certain level yeah. uh, of soccer and, and, and increasing their understanding of the sport. Because I know with basketball, I think the British Basketball League has suffered because people have now got a much better flavour of the real quality of the NBA and uh, with the best one in the world, we, we look a pale shadow of that. Um, I just wonder whether there's. No, I, I don't believe it in America would have that, that, that negative effect. I think ultimately we, we understand, you know, we're not blind to the fact that the premiership is stronger than the MLS currently, but I think we're also aware that we have, the population and we have the infrastructure to be able to be competitive with the premiership uh, someday, yeah. whether it's in five years or 10 years, it doesn't matter. But the objective is eventually to be competitive enough that there, that gap doesn't exist anymore. One final question. Can America win the world cup in three years time? Oh, wow. I would say that anybody can win the World Cup. Uh, you know, look, we, we, on the fence, <laughs> look, we, have, on. we have a strong team. Uh, I would say the, the biggest difference with America and other world powers in football right now is their depth. Um, I think if you put us up with any top team in the world, we'd compete with them. But if you have to go from player 12 to 24, then you might, we currently, we might start having issues. Right. Um, I just remember the, the world cup, uh, in, well, the last world cup now in, in Qatar, when we played England, obviously tied them. 
But then they had Marcus Rashford off the bench. They had Grealish off the bench. They had Henderson off the bench. They had, Gia Reyna off the bench. they had Foden coming off the bench, right? And Gia, for, with all due respect for our players, they just don't have the experience week in and week out that, and 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 the the global notoriety that some of these teams have. You know, you have a Brazil where they have two first teams. You know, really, truly, um, and so I believe once America gets to the point that our depth is just as strong as our, our first team, then I think we're definitely going to be feared and, and respected um, uh, to a high regard in the global sport. And I would guess those MLS owners, franchise owners, will be looking greedily at the future because if they can really make an impact since the World Cup, their franchise becomes so much more valuable. A hundred percent. And I would tell you that after 2026 World Cup, you're going to see a huge influx of international players coming into the MLS because players are going to see the infrastructure, the stadium, the training facilities. And if there's one thing America does, it's infrastructure, yeah. right? That's even on the university level, it's, it's miles away from a lot of premiership clubs. Um, so I think that players are going to come to the MLS compete or come to the America for the world cup, compete in the world cup and see, wow, this is what they were talking about. Okay, I want to. I want to be here. You know, it, it, there's there's really not a negative to playing in the MLS besides the opportunity to play in Champions League. But you know, if if you've already done that, you've done it. Where will you be in 2026? I will be watching our team compete, trying to get out of their group and and advance to the to the knockout rounds and the quarters and hopefully the semis. And I think once you get you know, we, we, we got to the second round this time. I think once you get to the quarterfinals of any tournament, anything can happen. It doesn't matter how good or how bad you are. Anything can happen. A known goal, you go through. And then um, that, that's where the, the luck of the sport come, comes into play. And that's for my lack of my uneducated position. I wouldn't rule out a big shock. Well, never. There's always Cinderella stories. Yeah. Look at Morocco uh, yeah. this last World Cup. No, nobody. Yeah. anticipated them going as far as they did and they could have probably gone further. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would love for America to be that Cinderella story and, and even more so at home. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's just adds that extra special piece to it. Yeah. And it would, you know, I think the truth is for the game globally, it would be a fantastic thing for the nations to get behind winning American team on holes on home I, I think I think the rest of the world would hate us because <laughs> they don't believe us to be a soccer nation and there's like oh hey what is this America they don't play soccer how are they good at soccer or football um, but I think it would be a, a, a very good wake-up call yeah. to everybody else to see how far we've come and where we want to go maybe I'm too close to the people in the industry are looking up and they've already had the wake-up call well, hopefully hopefully Gooch. Really appreciate your time today. No, it's um, my pleasure. Great role model for American sport. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, We'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies 
from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur. Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the City's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team. The Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison. GB Javelin Champion and Olympic medalist, Goldie Sayers. The Chief Exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson. And the Chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website more speakers to be announced shortly but it is going to be a fantastic day that's thursday the 7th of september 2023 downtown in businesses business of sport conference 